from Luminary Media and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Lou Gerstner and IBM. This is a company that two years before that had shown the biggest profits, I think, in, in, ever and by any company. And within a period of three years, it was losing billions of dollars. The board of directors had decided to break it up into pieces and sell it off. And so when I got there, I had to unlock this huge talent pool that was there and get them energized and focused and working in a different way. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the legendary CEOs of the 1990s were people like Jack Welch of GE or John Chambers of Cisco, who was on our show last season. But another name that dominated the pantheon of great CEOs at the end of last century was Lou Gerstner of IBM. Not only was he the first IBM CEO to be recruited from outside the company, but when he was asked to take the job in 1993... Lou Gerstner had never really worked for a technology company. And as you'll hear, he arrived to the company in the middle of a huge crisis. Big Blue, as IBM is known, was one of the biggest players in technology in the world. But as the personal computer revolution started to take off in the 1980s, smaller upstarts like Dell and Compaq were leaving IBM in the dust. In addition, Microsoft's Windows system was crushing IBM's OS2 system. And IBM had a decentralized structure that created a whole series of redundancies and inefficiencies. The day Lou Gerstner arrived at IBM, he famously said, quote, The last thing IBM needs right now is a vision. And instead, he focused on things like breaking through IBM's internal bureaucracy and making tough decisions. That approach would pay off, because between the time Gerstner arrived to IBM in 1993 and the time he left nine years later, the company's market cap went from $29 billion to $168 billion. But even though Lou Gerstner is remembered as a legendary CEO, he says he never intended to lead a company. In fact, he never really considered becoming a businessman at all when he was a kid growing up on Long Island. I grew up in the village of Mineola. Back then, uh, we had some villages, and the 
western part of the island in Nassau County, and for the most part, the rest of the island was farms. Hmm. No Long Island Expressway, no parkways. Hmm. And and what did your your parents do? What what did they do for for work? My father was the traffic manager for the F and M Schaefer Brewing Company. My mother did something about everything. She was a secretary. She sold real estate. She was a an officer in a college working on admissions. So whatever she could do, sometimes it was two jobs. My father worked nights. My mother worked days. Hmm. And uh, and a pretty religious family. Did you guys go to church every weekend? And we, we went to church every weekend and on, on holy days and uh, went to Sunday school. And we had crucifixes and most of the rooms in our house. Were you a pretty good student? Yeah, I mean, I I, I worked hard as a student. Uh, I don't think much in life comes easy. Maybe maybe there are natural athletes and maybe there are natural geniuses, but no, I, I'm a firm believer, and I've said to people for many, many years that I believe in that whole prescription that success is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration, so... I did my homework. I worked hard. Uh, my parents pushed me, and I enjoyed my work. I did. I enjoyed school. Yes. When you um, when you you went off to college, you went to Dartmouth, and then you would go on to to Harvard to do a business degree. This is in the, in the sort of the early to mid sixties, and at that time, I mean, what did you think you should do with? I mean, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do with your life, or what you should do with your life? I had absolutely no idea. Huh. One of the reasons that I went to Dartmouth is that it offered a bachelor's degree in a BA while I could study science, which was my interest. And while I was in the engineering program at Dartmouth, uh, my favorite subjects were philosophy and French and subjects like that, which sort of steered me away from engineering school. And I'm not quite sure, Guy, that it was terribly insightful, but hmm. the alternative was business school at that point. And and so the idea was, well, I'll go there and 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 probably get some kind of job out of that. It's some kind of stable job that that Well, I mean it was probably it was probably a little more confident than that. Hmm. Uh you know, I had worked almost every summer hmm. during college. I'd worked for New York Telephone Company, I worked for the Scott Paper Company, I worked for General Motors. Uh, all doing summer jobs and got a glimpse into the business world. So I, I, I don't think I fell into business, but I don't think I was propelled from my youth to be a CEO, no. So so in your mind, I mean, the idea of be, becoming a, a corporate executive, this was not a part of the plan. There was no... There's no vision in your mind when you were a younger man that, that this is what you would do. Absolutely not. I, I never met a CEO until I was pretty much out of business school. So when you finished, um, when you finished business school, um, I mean, today, a lot of people who attend business school, particularly Harvard Business School, have dreams of becoming entrepreneurs. As you know, right? They, they, this is a really popular um, area of study, even though a lot of them go on to, to into finance and consulting. There is more of a sort of an entrepreneurial kind of push. When you graduated in 1965, was that, was that the case? Or, or zero. zero. There was none. None. I mean, there might have been a couple of people who thought about it, but um, 
I can't remember a classmate of mine. Back when I graduated, the big avenues of attention for MBAs, at least at Harvard, were consulting and consumer products goods. Hmm. So being a product manager at Colgate or Procter & Gamble, in fact, it, my choice came down to Procter & Gamble and McKinsey, the consulting firm, as to my first job, my first full-time job. And quite frankly, one of the reasons I chose to go to McKinsey is I figured it would be an extension of my education hmm. and that I would learn a lot in a hurry. And McKinsey had a great reputation at that time, as it does now. Uh, and I found it extremely uh, helpful in developing skills. And what, did, what, what, was, what were the kinds of projects that they had you work on? Well, I'll, I'll never forget the first project I was asked to work on was a compensation study for an oil company. And I uh, said to the senior partner, well, I don't know anything about executive compensation. <laughs> I don't know anything about oil industry. He said, don't worry, you're just going to do the charts. And so I did the grunt work of analysis, and, and I learned a lot about what it means to take apart a business problem, hmm. how to look at the economics of a company, how to understand its competitive analysis. McKinsey was maniacal on making sure that before you made any judgments, you did all of your homework on how the company worked, what was its economics, what was its competitive profile, what were the strategic threats, and only then did you open your mouth with an opinion. Um, and so that was a very important grounding for me in terms of how I think about management. It sounds like from from what I've read, um, I mean, you obviously were committed and and smart and worked hard, but you were like kind of like a rising star there, right? I mean, I think by the by the by your late twenties, you became a director at McKinsey. Yes, I was. A, I enjoyed McKinsey. I really, I really liked it. I became a senior partner. I was on the senior executive committee, and I just decided over the course of the last few years that I was getting less enthusiastic about being the person who brings in the presentation and tries to convince the person at the end of the table to do something. And I said, you know, I really want to be that person at the end of the table. When I decided to leave, you know, McKinsey was very nice about it. They, they, you know, they wanted me to stay. They told me I had a very, very senior future there, but I, I left as do a lot of people at McKinsey and they're very gracious about that. This is sort of we're now in the late 70s and you get – were you approached by American Express or had you done work with them before? Yes. I, I had done many years of work with American Express. By the way, I had, I had been offered jobs by other clients that I worked for and decided I didn't want those jobs. And right. uh, I had been approached by American Express earlier and I said, no, I don't really want to do that. And then there was a retirement of a very senior person at American Express. And the then president said to me, listen, I want you to come and run what was then the travel-related services company. Hmm. And at 30 or 31 years old, all of a sudden I'm running a company with 35,000 employees and wow. multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was a, it, I just decided I was going to go do it because I loved the company and I knew about it. So you were, you were 
pretty much from the beginning put in a not just a, a leadership position, but a pretty pretty senior leadership position. Yes, and that that took some that, that took some adjusting. Yeah, probably the biggest adjustment was that uh, one day I I began with my McKinsey training. It didn't take me long to figure out that the the second most important expense in American Express was credit losses. That's normal in a financial institution. So I looked up in the book who was in charge of credit losses and called this person up to my office and said, now give me a tutorial. And we spent a couple hours on that. It was great. And the next day I walk in and my assistant said, my God, what have you done? This place is really rocking. <laughs> I said, well, what's the problem? And she said, well, you met with somebody and there are three levels of management between you and that person and <laughs> every one of them is upset that they were not in the meeting. <laughs> so, you know, at McKinsey, we didn't have any hierarchy. We just, whoever had the smartest comment to make and the, and the best facts, they, they spoke. Uh, and I had to get used to the idea of hierarchy and it's been a an issue I've dealt with throughout my career about meetings and who goes to meetings and why we have meetings and why we should never have meetings. And <laughs> so that was one of the things that, that I had to get used to when I went there. By the way, the other thing I had to get used to was how public you are inside a company of that size. One day I remember my uh, boss um, calling me into his office and he said, you know, Lou, you got to start smiling on elevators. Hmm. And I said, Jim, you got kidding me. I mean, I'm busting my butt here trying to fix this business and get it growing again and I'm working hard. What do you mean? He said, well, have you noticed that when you get on the elevator in the morning, no one else gets in? Hmm. They're looking at their new shining boss and they're all wondering who he is and you're not smiling, so start smiling on elevators, Lou. That was another lesson about being sensitive to the way employees look at your behavior as well as what you say and do. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you're thinking, look, you know, I, I'm working really hard and, and, and this is how I should be evaluated, presumably. But, but I mean, he had a point, right? I mean, you, <laughs> that, that may have seemed trivial, but it, it was an important point. Oh, it was, it was a very important point, and I've carried it with me ever since in terms of how you think about your employees' expectations of the company and you. They're not the same as the leader. Mm. They come to work doing their jobs. They've got families. They've got fears. They've got health issues in their family there, and they, and they want to feel good about their leader. That was something I had to work on, having been a strong analytical person at McKinsey. And, you know, there's no successful company without a successful culture. And culture is all about how people feel about commitment to the organization. Is the organization committed to them? Is the, does the organization respect them? Does the organization treat them as individuals and with who owe uh, an understanding of what's going on? And so it was a awakening to me about how important it is for 
a company to have a culture where people feel on the one hand safe, but on the other hand, happy to take risk. And taking risk depends on you feeling comfortable with your leaders. Hmm. And so, yeah, that was a the start of my almost preoccupation with the importance of culture in large organizations. So you are at Amex, um, uh, and and this is a time when I mean American Express was not quite the sort of um, the powerhouse that it is today. I think I mean I'm assuming that when you, in the early days of your time at American Express, um, you know this is a time where you couldn't use you literally you couldn't use the card in a lot of places. Like a lot of huge retailers didn't didn't even accept it, right? Yeah. So there there, there were two things that really I had to address in American Express. And the most important was that American Express owned what I think might have been the greatest business ever created in the world. It was called Traveler's Checks. Hmm. And you gave people a whole bunch of money because you wanted to have a good vacation. And so you overbought Traveler's Checks way in advance of the vacation. Then you went on vacation, you came home with a third or half of them left and you put them in a drawer. And all that time, Air Express had your money. It was a float business way before Berkshire Hathaway's float business. Mm. And the American Express card was going to threaten that business. And so when I arrived, I had a senior management that wanted to protect traveler's checks and not let the card grow very fast. And so companies that hang on to their most profitable base business at the time of change are going to die. They're doomed, yeah. And so what I had to do, most of anything, is to convince the leadership team there that the card was the future, and if we didn't build it, someone else was going to build it, and whomever built it was going to destroy their traveler's check business. So that was my hardest job. We then had to take the card around the world. There were eight countries that had the card, eight currencies that had the card. When I got there, there were 31 currency cards when I left. And of course, we had to get far more aggressive about getting acceptance of the card in more places around the world, which meant reducing our prices. So, I mean, th this is almost um, <laughs> impossible to imagine today, but... In 1978, traveler's checks were still hugely profitable for American Express and would be for another decade or so. But clearly, this was not going to be a, a product on which to throw all of your chips in, right? I mean, the, the, the traveler's checks business was you could see where it was eventually going to go. But there was resistance inside the company to actually what I guess that they sort of saw the card as, a, as an internal competitor. Of course, but don't you think that at Kodak, digital photography mm. was viewed as a competitor right, by right. the guys who made the little yellow boxes? Right. And so uh, this is a, um, um, a practice or a, or a behavior that I've termed the success syndrome, where there's a business that is enormously successful, has been successful for multiple decades, and then a threat comes along. And it is very, very difficult 
for that company to move away and cannibalize its existing product and build up what is effectively an internal competitor. People say to me, well, gee, didn't Kodak, did they not see digital photography? Of course they saw it. They invented it. Yeah. And didn't AT&T see mobile or cellular communication? Yeah, they invented it at Bell Labs. But they simply couldn't drive the organization away from its enormously successful base in a different direction. And that's really what happened at American Express. That's what we had to do. We had to say the future is in cards. It's not in paper-based checks. And how you do it is you simply have to continually create a sense of urgency. You have to create a sense of strategic loss. You have to create a sense that over time, we're going to die if we don't do this. And then you have to develop a, a pathway, an execution plan that says, okay, here's, here's the best way to hang on to the old business while we build up the new business. But these are the principles that we will not violate. We will not hold back the new business where it needs critical resources. Guy, this is, this is the problem of so many mm. companies today. As you think about the revolution in information technology, think about the retailers. Right. You know, moving off of the base business of running stores was awful hard. The other thing we did while I was there is we segmented the market and introduced, you know, a gold card and then a platinum card. And as I said, we went from eight currencies to 31 currencies and and then expanded the, the number of stores or outlets that respected or took the card. And those three dimensions got the card business growing to the point where it very quickly overtook the revenue and profits of the traveler's check business. And the fact that we were able to grow it very quickly ameliorated a bit the decline in traveler's checks, and we never had to have a down year. Hmm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. 
If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. I'm curious, when you were at American Express, um, what was the what was your sense of of where you would go there? I mean, was it was it your? I mean, did you at a certain point you must have thought, you know, I think I want to lead this company. I want to, I want to become the CEO of this place. Well, I certainly felt that way, and in fact, I was for the most part told that was going to happen at some point. Yeah, and then it didn't. And so then when the opportunity to go to RGR Nabisco came along, I decided to take it. So how, I I know that um, at the time when you went to RGR Nabisco, um, there was a lot of, I mean, certainly in, in, uh, um, a lot of Wall Street analysts were saying, well, how, you know, what does, what does Lou Gerstner know about, about food and tobacco? Um, when you got there, um, what what did you you know what's, what what did you sort of face? What was the what was the, the the landscape that you were now kind of overseeing? Well, guy, there's a very famous book written about this called Barbarians at the Gate, mm-hmm. and Archer Nabisco was the eighth most valuable or admired eighth most admired company in the world, according to I think Business Week at that point. And I was enamored with the idea of now running a very large and successful company. Yeah. But what happened is that financial markets were going through very difficult times. So that it, it, I was faced, I had a piece of debt guy that carried a 21% interest rate. Wow. I had another one, which was was 19 and a half, and it was so-called pick paper, which means you didn't pay interest, you just paid more debt. And it kept kept getting reset every year and kept going up and up and up. So what happened at our jar Nabisco is I spent most of my time selling assets to pay off the debt that had been created for the um, LBO. You were selling off... Companies, businesses that that were owned by the, yes, yes, and of course, when you are up against the wall and your balance sheet is about to explode and you're about to lose control of a company, you have to sell the best asset, not the worst assets, and you have to take the first price and not the last price. And so we wound up selling some very, very successful companies that had been put together. I mean, our jar Nabisco had been assembled over the last decade from a whole bunch of individual companies. And so the food company included, you know, Lifesavers as well as Oreos, as well as other snack planters, peanuts. And so we, we sold off everything we could to pay down the debt. And some of those products, like I think Oreos, for example, are owned by Mondelez today, a completely different company. Right. 
So you um, you were there, I think, for four years, and uh, and I, I, I guess while you were even while you were at RJR Nabisco, IBM had come knocking a few times, um, interested in in sort of gauge, you know, measuring your interest in in whether you would come there or not, and you would you would you sort of turn them down a couple of times before you agreed to go there. Yes, I left uh, to go to. IBM on April 1st, 1993, appropriately April Fool's Day. And I think that the IBM search started at prior se- September. Um, they did approach me and they approached a whole lot of people as it's well documented. And I, I said immediately, I said, no, I'm, 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 I can't run a technology company. I mean, I know how, I know how to use technology, but I certainly can't run a technology company. So no, thank you. They came back a few weeks later and said, come on, keep your hat in the ring. And I said, I don't have a hat in this ring. And they were, I think, running out of candidates. Wow. I I don't think anybody wanted that job. Uh, And then eventually um, they convinced me that it was a leadership challenge, not a technology challenge. And um, then I got a little more interested in it. And I went through a series of processes to go look at some of the numbers. And and then one day I took a walk on the beach and I said, should I do this or should I not do this? Hmm. I came home and I said to my wife and children, well, I'm going to take it. I mean, this was a, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the the year that you joined, IBM lost posted an $8 billion loss. The uh, shares of IBM were were down to like $12, right? I mean, the company was just hemorrhaging money. It was it was in a, in a really bad, in really bad shape. Um, presumably, they, it was it had to do with the sort of the, the PC clones, right? I mean, that IBM really didn't, didn't, um, wasn't positioned, it hadn't positioned itself to compete in, in that market at, in, in a way that it should have. That's correct, and the, and the loss I, I believe that they announced um, that spring for the prior year was the largest loss that ever recorded up until that point by an American corporation. And yes, um, let's go back to our success syndrome that we talked about with yeah. travelers' checks. IBM had a remarkable business built around mainframes, which had really created information technology for the most part in large institutions around the world. And for reasons that we don't have time to go in in this discussion, uh, people decided they wanted more distributed computing. Individuals in a corporation wanted access to a terminal where they could do some computing on their own as opposed to running to the IT guy and begging for time. And so the customer started to want distributed computing, as it's called, and IBM basically knew that and started really the creation of the PC industry, but then it it didn't get behind it. Again, it was so wedded to the mainframe that it really didn't get fully behind in any way uh, a distributed environment for computing. This is a company that two years before that had shown the biggest profits, I think, in, in ever and by any company. 
Wow. It was always ranked year after year as the number one company in the world. And within a period of three years, it was losing billions of dollars. And as I was arriving, the board of directors had decided to break it up into pieces and sell it off. Right. And the company was frozen. People couldn't believe what had happened. They had grown up, and IBMers, for the most part, were lifers. They had grown up believing they were part of this extraordinary, and they were correct, they were part of an extraordinary successful company. But things changed, the world changed, and they didn't change. And so when I got there, I had to unlock this huge talent pool that was there and get them energized and focused and working in a different way. But when when you when you were recruited to go to IBM and your initial response was I'm not a technology person this is not my area of expertise and someone said look the, the problem at IBM is a leadership problem what was the leadership problem what what was what were the things that you actually had to to change well the first thing that I had to change was repositioning the mainframe which meant that we had to drastically cut its prices because it was getting um, attacked by two Japanese companies that had basically cloned the IBM system. And so we had to cut prices by almost 50% in a period of a few months, which again was something that was fought bitterly inside the company because that's where, if there were any profits, that's where they were coming from. So now the losses were going to be worse. The second thing I had to do is I had to decide whether we were going to keep the company together or to continue to break it up into pieces. And I, I made the decision as a former customer of IBM that we were going to keep it together, mm. that there was a unique value that IBM brought to the industry. And that was its ability to deliver solutions that encompassed hardware, software, and services. So that was the second thing we had to do. And then thirdly, we just had to unlock the talent and get people working differently than worked before. But how, I mean, the, and, the, and, and and I would, I would think that the third would in some ways be the most challenging um, because how do you do that? How do you, how do you unlock that? Well, you're right. The, certainly, the, I mean, the first two decisions were relatively easy for me. The third one of how do you get the company working together is took a, a whole series of steps. Communication. I mean, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours talking to people all over the world in IBM and saying to them, look, there's nothing wrong with IBM. The problem is that we're just not paying attention to customers. Mm. We have the technology. We have the resources. Now let's go out and get reconnected with our customers and listen to them and deliver what they want. So I got the company focused externally on winning again and not frozen and thinking about internal things. Then we had the guy, we had to go and change every single process in the company. And I'm telling you, that was a five-year challenge. One of my associates at the time described process transformation is setting your hair on fire and putting it out with a hammer. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, it, it, we had to, for example, change the organization, which almost destroyed me. Uh, IBM was a train wreck of decentralization. Hmm. My good friends at McKinsey, when I was there, you know, made tons of money going around the world and convincing people that decentralization was the way to run global companies. And in many respects, at the time, it was. But by the time you got to IBM in 1993, it was astonishingly over-decentralized. Hmm. I mean, we had many IBMs in almost every country in the world. I remember when I got there asking, well, how are we doing with the uh, 1-800-IBM marketing activity? And I was told, oh, no, 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 corporate doesn't own the 1-800-IBM number. It's owned by the Alabama branch, and they won't give it to us. We had data centers all over the world. We had everybody who wanted an advertising agency hired their local advertising agency. So this, this train wreck of decentralization had created massive amounts of cost in each organization, and it had created a rigor mortis in terms of people working together. So I had to change the organization. I had to change the compensation system. I had to change the the measurement system and what we measured and what we looked at. Those are all processes that we had to go through to get people focused on a new strategy, the strategy that I had outlined of being the company that delivers solutions. And that's why I had to drive a culture that valued teamwork above anything else. But how, how did you do that when you came in as an outsider? I mean, presumably you had to bring in a new team. You had to get rid of some people, uh, but it's those aren't enough. I mean, you have to, you still need buy-in. I mean, there's still hundreds of thousands of employees who have to b believe in that, right? So, so the best thing that happened to me at IBM was, and I knew it was there when it was probably the reason I eventually decided to go, was I knew it was full of talented people. Hmm. I mean, I had competed with IBM over the years when I was at other companies trying to hire people, and they almost always won. And so my job was to convince them that we needed to do something different. We really, and it wasn't too hard given the situation we were in. I, I, I didn't bring in many outsiders, Guy. I mean, hmm. there, was no, there was no HR head when I got there and there was no finance head when I got there. So I had to bring in people from the outside. But I had to make some choices among the people who were in the senior group. Hmm. IBM had this general view, which again, I think is in successful organizations that as you grow up in an organization, as you become a, a leader, your job is to preside. You preside. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I don't believe that. I believe as you move up in an organization, you dig in and you, uh, you stay close to the facts, you stay close to the marketplace, you stay close to customers and you're as knowledgeable as the people who work in your department, if not more. We had something I called Operation Bear Hug, where I said to the top 50 to 100 people in the company, over the next two months, you're going to go out and visit five customers. 
and tell them that we care about them and listen to them and find out what we can do for them. Everybody. The lawyer said to me, well, I can't do that. I said, yes, you are going to do that. They had a communication said, well, I can't do that. I said, yes, you are. And I said, I'm going to, I want you to send me a four page letter or memo about each of your visits. And I'm going to read every one of them. Hmm. You know, changing a culture is about changing processes. You don't manage a culture directly. You can't just jump on culture and say change. Mm. You have to change what people do and what they value and what you reward in a company. And so that's why this process change was so important because we could not have become an integrated company. We could not have become hardware, software, and services without integrating inside the company and changing the way we paid people. How were you able to hold people accountable? I mean, there there are huge challenges. There are multiple challenges. There are dozens of, of potential solutions um, and then other initiatives and then other problems that are, that are coming to you. So uh, how were you able to sort of figure out how to compartmentalize and focus on very specific things because there's it's it's i mean it's practically impossible for for a single human to juggle 50 different things at the same time or even 10 different things at the same time uh i want you to know guy that um you know i went home every weekend with four briefcases uh i rarely got home at night before eight or nine o'clock at night was left for the office at six thirty or 7 in the morning traveled all over the world and probably two months after i was at ibm i said to my wife i made a mistake wow i, I can't do it. it it's i mean i felt like i was walking in quicksand overwhelming you know I, yeah i take one step forward and i two steps down but eventually there were things that we could do quickly to stabilize the company. So we quickly found some ways to cut losses. I had, when I got to IBM, we had four businesses that were losing a billion dollars each. Wow. And I said to myself, well, I don't know, Lou, this is, you know, this is, this is easy, Lou. All you got to do is get two of those to zero and, and you've made $2 billion. Uh, well, it wasn't so easy, but we did find ways to very rapidly improve the stability of the company, the financial stability. And then I was able to say to the organization, now we are stable financially. Now we're going to go grow. And because we were able to do that, we actually turned a profit, I think, in the fifth or sixth quarter after I was there, hmm. that gave me some time to sort out the 50 things. Hmm. When did you start to see a turnaround? When when did you start to sort of see the light? I mean, because when you got there, it was, a, it was a crisis, right? Billions of dollars being lost. And um, how long did it take before you started to see? To well, see the, yeah. I told you earlier that we, we turned a profit in about fifth or sixth quarter. And I really was unhappy about that. I didn't want that because I knew that was going to lead a whole bunch of IBMers to say, oh, oh, good. Now we can go back to the way we were before. <laughs> right, right. 
And I was still trying to drive this sense of urgency, this sense of crisis, which is absolutely tantamount to any organization to, to really transform itself. Um, I would say it was about three years in, maybe four, when we had stabilized the company and then we came up with um, the e-business campaign. And that put IBM in a leadership position in the industry. We now were leading something because the, the industry went from mainframe to PC to e-business or network business. And we were in front of that. And it, it gave the company a sense that we were not only fighting a defensive game, but we were now out in front. Uh, and that's when I felt that the wind had turned from directly in our face to our back. And I just got to tell you, Guy, that there is a dramatic difference. You can feel it in an organization when the wind moves from in your face to in your back. And that's occurred about three years in. And then I knew we were, we were on our way. When you think about your career and what you ended up doing, I mean, did, do you think that you in some ways were born with leadership skills or do you think that you learned how to become a leader? Well, that's a question I get regularly when I teach at these leadership forums. Um, Guy, I think that 99% of management is acquired and management is a very large percentage of leadership there's a maybe a 10 or 20 percent of leadership that is um, emotional it's um intuitive it's um just attitude i mean great leaders imbue organization with an emotional commitment uh, they create passion they create a sense of belonging, a sense of, of achievement, a sense of challenge. And uh, you have to learn how to communicate. You have to learn uh, how to manage your time. You have to learn how to do performance appraisals. You have to learn about how to do good competitive analysis. And those are those are skills that I think you have to work on for uh, as in your in a lifetime. Hmm. As you know, Lou, there is a lot of conversation about the the responsibility of corporations towards the public and towards their workers. And you know, you've been really outspoken about it, and you've said that uh, corporations have a responsibility beyond just making money. That's correct, and somehow. A whole bunch of people seem to have discovered that corporations should have a responsibility beyond their shareholders. And, you know, I find this a somewhat amusing discussion because I don't know why uh, we haven't learned or recognized that there is no successful corporation that doesn't worry about its employees, doesn't worry about 
uh, the communities in which it works. I mean, you can't have a successful company in an unsuccessful community. Mm. You can't expect to have good workers, good staff members, if you don't have an education system in the country producing people who can learn and know something and can communicate and can live in a 20th century world. So to think that corporations can simply only worry about their shareholders is, is a myopic view mm. that I've never felt had any value. And here's my point. I don't view this as some additional challenge, additional responsibility imposed on a corporation. I view this as an absolute necessary and important part of being a corporation, of being successful. That's the former CEO of IBM, Lou Gerstner. Lou is now retired and spends much of his time working with his foundation. And he's probably not going to be rushing back to head another company anytime soon. When asked what he misses about being a CEO, he answered, quote, not that much. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-It Productions.